You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. I have a fan. Uh, I don't think, oh, there we go. How are we doing? Well, that song, I wish Sherwin was here to hear you guys sing it. Uh, uh, there's, I, I appreciate uh, what Brian was saying. I, I don't think I've written a song uh, that anybody here knows that Sherwin didn't fix. And uh, uh, that song right there, I'd been to Africa and I uh, visited a church. Lisa and I were, were making a tour of Africa, uh, getting ready to plant churches in Africa. And um, I'd heard uh, the first time I'd been in a congregation uh, out of the country, at least where there was a call and response. And I came back and I said, we, we, need, to, we need to write a song. And so that's, that's where that one came from. There is a Bible reference in Zephaniah. And how many of you have read Zephaniah lately? You know, you, <laughs> you know for some reason, I, you know, I was looking at it last night. And I thought, that's a really cool word to be named, to be Zephaniah. I, I don't know. I just thought it was, I thought it was cool. Uh, but there was a name started with a Z like that. And uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of debate. You know, and, and let me say this. There's hardly anything in the Bible that someone doesn't debate with somebody else about what it, <clears throat> what it means. But uh, there's a lot of debate about when Zephaniah lived. Most People believe it was during uh, Josiah's reign uh, and that uh, he was, was during the time of the great restoration uh, that occurred and calling people to repent. Others say because I mean, when you read Zephaniah, it's not, I mean, two and a half chapters are all about how God's going to kill everybody. I mean, so it's and, and, and fairly descriptive. It's, it's, it sounds like a scene out of Pulp Fiction there for a second, you know, but uh, then it ends up with. Uh, the people, uh, God talking about rejoicing, his people are going to come back to him and, and he's going to rejoice over us with song. And what the words really mean in the original language is it's like a father over a baby shouting for joy. And uh, that is just filled with, with, with just happiness and, and jubilance. And in Luke chapter 15, if you'd look there for just a second, I'm not going to read all those verses. It's, it's too hot. And, and, if, and if you're visiting uh, and, and uh, you don't re- you know, someone dragged you to church, I promise I'm not going to go very long. I see how hot it is out there. If you're not visiting and you're here and you still don't want to hear me preach, I'm not going to go very long. Uh, it's it's going to be over. And, and I'm really, I'm not going to even preach to you. Uh, I, I want to tell you, I came to tell you a story that uh, I'll eventually get around to. But uh, in, in Luke chapter 15, you've got three parables, the parable of, of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We call it the prodigal son. But the thing that that those stories all have in common is they end with the father rejoicing, the angels rejoicing in heaven when one soul returns. And something that I missed most of my life about what these stories are all about is uh, you take the prodigal son, for example, when he returns home and the father throws a party. Have any of you had any children graduate? And you, anyone throw a party for your children when they graduate? 
And how many of you hoped your friends would come and give your child money because you had none left? (laughs) When you throw those parties, who are they for? Well, huh? The sons? <laughs> oh, you're. Oh, I, there, I thought you were lying for a moment, but I couldn't. I just couldn't hear you. That's right. When 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 parents throw a party like that for their children, it's for themselves. That that's who it's for. It's it's a, a chance to. Yes, this is a party for my child. My child graduated. And it never occurred to me until I had a child that these stories are all about God wants to celebrate over us. God wants to sing. He wants to, he wants to shout for joy. He wants, he wants us back. Our story is the story of, of a fallen world. Our story is the story uh, not of, of God failing, but of God doing something that he was willing to painfully do to give us the, the freedom to live the kind of lives that we live. We may not feel free sometimes, but we are. And that he was willing to go as far as, as possible to the point of... When I wrote that song, I thought it was kind of cool. I hear God singing to me. I thought it was... And then, then people said, well, you're hearing voices and, and stuff <laughs> like that. And, uh, but uh, I think there's all kinds of ways for us to hear God uh, singing to us. And I can't prove that there's a God. I, I, you know, when I was young, I, I did a whole lot of study and preaching and teaching on uh, evidences, Christian evidences, all the proofs outside the Bible. Ultimately, belief in God is all about faith. Without, without faith, it's just it's impossible to please him. And part of that is because without faith, it's really impossible to believe in God. Uh, it's something, and for all of my brilliant friends, and I love them and admire them so much, there are arguments which, if you try to get into a logical debate, it's, it's, it's a tie. It's a split. You can't prove God. But I really think I've heard God singing to me. I really do. And I'm not talking about the voices in my head because those tell me to do something different. Uh, I, I, in Second Peter, and I, I want to tell you a story, and we're going to stay in Second Peter. But in Second Peter, I've I got to read something, and then... Hopefully my story will make sense and we can go. Uh, I was promised I'd get some Thai food if I didn't talk very long. So that's, that's motivation enough for me. I'm just an old man looking for a meal. That's all. But in Second Peter, you, you need a good Bible reading, so just... Bear with. We're going to start in verse 3. We could cut to the chase, but I want to start in verse 3. It'll be good for you. If you didn't bring a Bible, look on with someone else. If you brought an electric Bible, that's fine too. And, I, you know, sometimes preachers say, turn your phones, turn your phones on. And you can tweet, Twitter, email. What, if I say something good, share it. If I don't, shut up. But <laughs> His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted and blind and uh, scummy and uh, ignorant and evil and uh, filled with... Are you guys reading? Okay. He's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are some of my favorite passages in the Bible, as I'm sure they are for so many of you. And one of the things I love about these verses we just read is how it shows that our growth is a whole lot like the Lord's. And while we'll never be perfect, don't, don't mis misunderstand me. And while I believe with all my heart Jesus was born of a virgin and was the only perfect person to ever live on earth, uh, Luke clearly says that he grew in knowledge and stature. That, that implies that even with Jesus, he was able to grow in knowledge and stature. As a human being, we know that means he grew up from being a baby to a boy to, to a man. But also in knowledge, there was, it seems to be some sort of ongoing revelation he had that led him closer and closer and closer to the ultimate sacrifice he would make. Well, here in, in Peter, Peter... Peter says in, in a like fashion that we're to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge. The, I believe these things are in a very specific order for a specific reason. Is because for a lot of us we have faith, but we're not very good. We struggle with being good people, but we have faith. And God likes that. You know, Jeho there's another singing passage. I like this one. It's in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, I think. It's the story of Jehoshaphat, another really cool name in the Bible. It makes you want to jump, but uh, you have to be old. That's, that's old stuff, you know. Where was I? Jehoshaphat. They were all these armies were going to attack him, and God said, all I want you guys to do is sing. He says, and I'll take care of it. I'll set up, he says, I'll set up snares for them. It's one of the coolest stories in the Bible. The people, and Jehoshaphat appoints people to sing. And they sing, and the battle, and the battle is, is won. Uh, the thing that reminded me of that is that the goodness thing. It, it says that Jehoshaphat, he did some evil stuff. But there's a verse stuck in, stuck in the middle of all that says, but God says, there's some good in you. <laughs> and, and I like to think that God says that about me too. Because <laughs> you know, I know I'm a jerk. No, no one has to tell me that. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 trust, trust me, I am. But I'm a delightful jerk. <laughs> Shut up. See, see what I just did? You see, you see, it's just, it's just in me. It's just in me. Uh, but I think we can have faith, but we got to have goodness. And there's some good in us, but we need to add to that goodness. And, and then we got to add knowledge, because just as soon as we think we're good, we read the scripture and say, oh, heck, i got to start all over again. We find something else. And the knowledge, and so then we learn that, but then we got to have self-control, because it's easy to do it for one day, minute, you know. 
But it says self-control. And so you self-control yourself. And then it's, it's perseverance. Oh, I got to do it again and again and again. Well, this is our journey. Peter's saying this is us growing in knowledge and stature in the Lord. And then if we do this, if we understand it's never over, and if we won't get bored with the fact that it's never over, if we won't get discouraged with the fact that it's never over, Peter says this is going to make you productive. But if you don't do it, he says you're blind and you're, and you're nearsighted. But I haven't got to the good part yet. He says, so I will always remind, I will remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in them and in the truth you now have, I think it's right for me to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. Uh, There's a lot we don't know about the Bible. And there's a lot we don't know about the history of the Bible. There's a lot of things that is, here again, people can debate about, about virtually everything because there's just so much we don't know. Well, one of the speculations, one of my favorite speculations is that the gospel of Mark really is, is no such thing. That Mark simply wrote down a sermon that Peter was famous for preaching for about 30 years and that was known as the sermon and that when he wrote it down that Peter had him transcribe it so that it wouldn't be lost and that Mark essentially was sort of a a scribe for Simon Peter Uh, in first Peter is a letter that was sent out and I picture you know Peter saying get out the paper papyrus certainly wasn't a typewriter back then but you're gonna write down while I talk And they sent that letter out, and then they sent this second letter out. And so when I read Peter saying, it's good for me to remind you of these things. I'm always going to remind you of these things while I'm still alive, while I'm in the tent of the body. But the Lord's made it clear that I'm going to die soon. That's essentially what he's saying here. And that's a reference. It goes all the way back to the night that Jesus reinstated him, doesn't it? It goes all the way back to Jesus said, you're going to be led to a place that you don't want to go by people you don't want. They're going to dress you and lead you out. And it says in John that this was Jesus' way of telling Peter for telling the way that he was going to die. And uh, so here Peter now finally near the end of his life says, the Lord's made it plain to me that my time has come. And of course what a lot of people do agree on is that 1 Peter and 2 Peter, that these letters were written near the end of his death, shortly before he would be arrested in Rome and eventually crucified upside down. But all of that leads me to believing that when he says, I'm going to make sure that before I go, I leave a way for you to remember this, that he's talking about, I'm going to have Mark write out my gospel. Don't know for sure, can't prove it, but uh, I hear God singing to me. And it's significant to me because I think about before he died, the thing that was on his mind the most is I don't want people to forget. I want people to remember the Lord. I want people to remember Jesus. 
And I think about here today, we're talking about an act that a man before he was crucified upside down made certain would happen so that we can have these words and a Gina can walk in off the streets of New York into a church and hear someone read from them and look around and say, who told them about me? God is singing to you. The, the preacher may be good or bad. The, the sound system, the air conditioner might be off. But when you hear people read from the Bible and you say, who told them? God already knows you. God already knows us. And the amazing thing to me is that before we were ever born, God made sure I'm going to throw a message in a bottle down there to them. I can't do any more because it's got to do with all sorts of existential control and power and free will and all that. But... I'm going to send this message to them. And if they're open, there's not a soul that can read it without knowing I'm singing to you. I was 11 years old in Arkansas, and we were moving to Illinois. And we had a 1962 Chevy Biscayne. Four-door, brownish-green car. And my dad and I made a couple of preliminary trips from Arkansas up to Illinois. And that was before... Interstate 55 was completed, so there was a lot of two-lane roads. And any of you grew up like me, you know, with a father with a heavy foot, you're on a two-lane road, and it was constant, yeah, passing a car and getting back over. Yeah, my, my dad, you know, they, they didn't have NASCAR back then, but if they did, that's what he wanted to do. <laughs> and then they started building the interstate, and so you get these stretches of interstate, you know, that were four lanes wide and and that was really nice. And I remember like yesterday being three in the morning. It's just my dad and me going up to nail down some things before he moves the family. I remember the glow of the lights. I remember uh, the song. Who was it? Who was it that, that sang uh, uh, the only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man? The only one. Who, uh, the son, you, anyone remember that song? Any, anyway, any, anyway, that song was uh, this is how vividly I remember this moment was so important to me because dad pulled over that night on the interstate and said, son, you want to drive? I was 11 years old. <laughs> A lot of you out there saying that's criminal. Listen, that was in the 1900s. And I was 11 years now, old. Now it's three in the morning. These four lanes are virtually abandoned and bleak. Every once in a while, though, there are cars coming the other side enough that you're still in the days where people are polite and you dim your lights. You dim your lights, right? You, know, you get the brights and you dim your lights. But Dad lets me get behind the wheel. I'd already been driving pickup trucks on gravel roads, and I had my own NASCAR visions, even though I didn't know what NASCAR was. And I got behind the wheel driving and Dad already taught me how to look way down. Put your, your focus, you know, train your eyes, look way down the road. Don't look right in front of you. That way you're not just, you know, constantly, you know, doing this like you do when you're a baby driving a car. But that night, what he taught me when the lights were coming, he says, Steve, never look at the lights coming at you. He says, never look at the lights coming at you. He says, that white line on the side of the road. He says, you just look, you just look at that line. And then you won't get night blinded. You won't fixate in the wrong part. And you look at that line as far down the road as you can. And that's, that's how you stay on the road. Dad, I don't think, had any idea that moment he was doing any more than letting his 11-year-old have, a, have a, a, a really fun experience in a relatively controlled and safe environment. That sounds absolutely ridiculous to a lot of people. <laughs> but, 
But uh, little did he realize that that lesson would be something, you know, by the time I was 16, I was already fairly experienced. By, I was driving all over the state of Illinois and then Missouri and then all over the country. And, and I had learned as a child, don't look at the, the distractions. Don't look at the lights that can blind you. And I think that's so much of what the Bible's about is that we can get blinded by the world. We can get blinded by things that distract us, blinded by things that can ultimately destroy us. But if we fix our eyes on what's the white line, well, it's Jesus. If we can fix our eyes where we're supposed that we can, we can survive it. And, and again, I guarantee you, my father did not know I'd be preaching about that when he was doing. Uh, uh, he might have taken a sip of something while I was dry. I don't know. I'm just but. That someone did something for you at a time you didn't even know what they were doing. But ultimately, it was God singing to you. Let me, let me explain. Let me give you one last example. I was a theater major. In, I was a Bible major in college. But I flunked New Testament Greek because I was trying to major in Kathy Dixon. <laughs> I flunked Kathy Dixon, too. I would later get my degree in Lisa Rowe, however, and that's been going very, very well. Thank you very, very much. And, uh, but I didn't do really well uh, with, with real classes, and I started migrating over to the theater because that's where the girls were, and there weren't many boys over there. And the guy that was the professor became, first of all, my teacher, and then he became a mentor. I, I did an internship with him. And he would eventually become my best friend. And he and my father performed the wedding when Lisa and I would get married. But that was uh, Dr. Henry A. McDaniel, Jr. And uh, I called him Hank. I, well, I called him Henry. Everybody called him Uncle Hank. So I called him Henry just to spite things. And uh, he died in 1995 of liver cancer. There's not a day goes by I don't think about him. And... He, well, one day, you know, we had a class where we were supposed to memorize a monologue of Shakespeare. And he gave me this monologue that Falstaff does. Now, those of you who know your Shakespeare, Falstaff is a very robust, cowardly fellow. And huge. And I weighed probably 118 pounds wet at that time. And he gave me, he wanted me to stretch my, you know, he wanted me to do a different character from what I would usually do. And so I was supposed to memorize this thing. And we were in a room a lot like this, only much tinier and much older. And the class was sitting out there. And we had a chair up here and everybody would take their turns and come up and do their monologue. And uh, it came my turn to go up. And I, of course, was completely unprepared, as usual. Uh, I, I, I never, if it was work, I, I, I avoided it at, at all costs and just was trying to slide by. But now I'm on the spot. And, you know, I'd been cramming, you know, this monologue sitting there. And, and, and I thought, that there's just no way I'm going to get this. And I, and I went up and I, I took my place. And I don't even remember what the first words to this day of that monologue were. But I, I said, ah, sorry, I, I can't do it. I, 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 don't, I don't have it. And uh, he goes, take a seat. And, and uh, the next per he called the next name. And then as I was sitting down, the other person goes up. He says, Steve, see me in my office after class. Now, usually his office was a nice place to go. But I knew on this occasion it wasn't going to be all that much fun. 
And I wish I could tell you verbatim exactly what happened. I wish I could, could tell you. I'm, I'm sure he used very poetic words, but essentially what I remember is I went into the office and I went in very, you know, I was like the prodigal son. I had my speech prepared. I was apologizing. You know, uh, Henry, I'm sorry. I know I should have worked. But and he, says, he says, Steve, I'm not upset because of that. You being unprepared, I knew you'd be unprepared. You're always unprepared. He says, that's not what bothers me. He says, you wasted an audience. He says, there was a crowd there, and I don't care if you stand up and dance, burp, sing a song, do a mime, roll on the floor like a dog, don't ever waste an audience in my theater. I went away profoundly impacted by the fact that I gotten away with it yet once again. <laughs> I had no idea, no idea what that would mean as my life would go on. But as my life went on and more and more I was put in situations where spontaneously I'd have to get up and speak, I'd have to do something, and the crowds got larger and larger. In New York especially, I, deep in my soul was this thought, you never get to say, I don't have something to say. You never get to say, I don't, you've, you took this job, dude, so now it's your job to never waste an audience. And then, of course, being a disciple, all the more, be ready in season and out of season. You better always have a sermon. You better have, don't ever waste an audience. And so there was a period that the church in New York, we were having two services at the Jacob Javits Convention Center. Uh, and there were about 3,000 plus coming to each of those services. I know that because this, the room held 34, almost 3,400 people. And we filled it up two times every Sunday and had kids kingdom off, you know, doing whatever kids kingdom uh, 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 does. And uh, I decided that I didn't want to wear a suit one Sunday. I wanted to have a costume and I wanted to do a Bible character. And we'd done this musical upside down, so we had all these costumes. And um, I had Terry Knight meet me, one of our sisters. And she had the costume, and she had a makeup person, and they, they were making me up. And they said, what do you? I said, I want to be an old man. We planned this ahead. I'm going to be an old character. And I'd had weeks and weeks that Terry was, had the costume. They were planning it. I had weeks and weeks to prepare for this. I had weeks and weeks. And I got there that Sunday morning, and I'm in costume, and I still don't know what I'm going to do. Now, I'm not quite as big a derelict as I was when I was in college, but bottom line, some things in your, you just don't change, all right? And this was, I had made, I built this up so big in my head wanting to do it, I just couldn't come up with an idea that was as big as what I thought the cool idea was because I wanted to walk out there and I'm usually in a blue suit and a red tie, the little red handkerchief, you know, or white, you know, and it's Steve and they amen Steve and preach Steve and woo-woo and all that sort of stuff. And I wanted to walk out and no one even knew who I was and then do this really awesome performance that made everybody stand up and cheer. And the more I thought about that, the more as it got closer, I just couldn't come up with anything. And now it's time, literally, to walk on the stage at the Jacob Javits. They've, we've had communion. We've had singing. We've had everything. And now I'm supposed to walk out there. And I'm like, you better think of something fast. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where it just all came together. And I said, well, gee, you've been telling preacher stories for about 20 years already. You're in 
a Bible character costume, you can make all of those true stories. You've been making them up for years, but now this guy can say everything you've been saying is really true. And the guy that will do that best is Mark because he knew all of them. He was Peter's son in the faith. He was uh, the guy that abandoned the apostle Paul. He wrote a gospel. He uh, allegedly wrote the gospel uh, based on the, the sermon of Peter. He, I mean, all these, all these, uh, you're going to go out there. And I was basically kicking myself. You're going to go on out there because you don't waste an audience. And you're going to do John Mark. And come on, Steve, you're going to do a good job. Come on, let's go. Let's get with it. Now, fortunately, you know, I've been reading the Bible my whole life. I had the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why I just went out and I started quoting Scripture because I quoted Scripture since I was a baby. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Isaiah, and I'm thinking, all right, what are you going to do when this is over? <laughs> funny side note, those of you that have ever been to New York, maybe Gina is the only one that will appreciate this, but a funny side note. The church had grown and become so multicultural. We started, we were, we, we were a basic, I don't want to say conservative, we're a little white bread church in Manhattan that became a real church with people from everywhere and every background. But I came from a very conservative Church of Christ background. I remember the day that I changed my mind that instrumental music and worship wasn't wrong. It was a doctrinal issue for me. I'd have thought that Brian playing his guitar was going straight to hell. And if you sang with him, you were there. To... So, so that was where I was coming from. And as the church grew, we got wilder and wilder. I mean, you had to be some, not, not just Pentecostal, but an absolute on fire crazy Pentecostal to walk into our church and not think you just walked into the wildest place you'd ever been. Because during communion, people go, woo, 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 you know, and baptize, and there's all this stuff. And I would get up and say, okay, I know I can't really control you during the sermon, but can you during communion? No, Steve. Woo, woo, we're fired up. Can you during baptism? No, there was nothing. I tried for years. To, let's at least have reverence during a couple of, no, we're not going to do it, preacher. I walked out on stage in costume and I said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And someone right there, I remember where they were in the Javits. Someone right there goes, woo! And the crowd went, shh. <laughs> and it hit me. This is New York City. They're not reverent about anything. Not communion, not baptism, but theater. <laughs> Well, I got, through, I got through that show, had a break. We had an afternoon service. I did it again. And then suddenly, all of my friends, you know, Russ Yule, different people, they heard about it, and they wanted me to come and do it there. And so for about two years, if I was invited to speak, I was never invited to speak. They wanted the old man in the costume to come. And I carried that costume literally every continent, almost every church in our fellowship, uh, every, every continent except Antarctica, and uh, we still haven't got there. But, and then I got tired of it. And uh, the, the, the makeup was irritating. And uh, uh, these days I don't need any makeup to look old. <laughs> so fast forward. 
We found out five years ago that Lisa has non-Hodgkin small cell lymphocytic lymphoma. And uh, I know that some of you know me, and you know Lisa, and you've been praying. Thank you, some of you, you, you. You've never seen me or heard about this before, but we've been so encouraged by brothers and sisters uh, helping us you know, from all over the world and praying for Lisa. And let me just go ahead and say she's doing well. For those of you that don't know, there's a zillion kinds of lymphoma. Uh, I've had people tell me, well, my aunt had lymphoma and she's cured now or they're in remission or something. The kind of cancer Lisa has doesn't go in remission. There is no known cure and it's always terminal. Uh, it's, fortunately, it's very slow growing. That's the good news. The bad news is by the time they found out that she had it, she was already late stage three. Now, the better news is while Regular oncologists say there's no treatment. They call it just watchful waiting, which means we're going to wait until you're dying and then try life extension measures, which means chemotherapy. And uh, that doesn't work for everyone. And like we said, there's no cure. So even if it works, it'll just prolong your life a little bit. But he looked at us very plainly and says, this is going to kill you, Lisa. Now, we have a very dear friend named Dr. Nick Gonzalez who had come up with the protocol years before. We knew him very well. And Lisa went on his protocol, and, and I'm pleased to report thanks to your prayers, thanks to the Lord, and I think thanks to Nick's protocol, Lisa's doing very well. Uh, and uh, she was supposed to, to die last year. We got a big cake with her expiration date and a line marked through it, and I celebrated with the whole church. And we're going to do that every year, Lord willing, for many, many years to come. I'm just very thankful. Uh, but when we found out uh, that she had this, we had been scheduled. Uh, we've been trying to go to Singapore for years and years. John and Karen Louie, who live over there, have been trying to get us to come. We finally had a trip, but Lisa couldn't make the trip because she needed to go see Dr. Nick, and she wanted me to go anyway. So I took Skylar, and Lisa took McCall to see the, the doctor. And uh, I went over and, and uh, told John and Karen you know, what, we were, what we were facing with. And I said, you know, we've got great health insurance. The, the church takes really good care of us. But while Nick is a doctor, and those of you that know, I, I still talk about him in present tense. Nick passed away suddenly two months ago, and uh, it was shocking. But his partner is taking over Lisa's case, so we're, we're pleased with that. But, but Nick was a friend. We're, we're still grieving about that. But at any rate, I was telling John and Karen, I said, our insurance, Nick is a, is a regular MD, but his, his treatment is alternative, and so the insurance won't cover it. And I said the church would cover it if they could, but it's going to break the church's bank. It breaks my We just don't have the money. I'm not really sure what we're going to do. We've, we've got to figure something out. And John Louie, and if you know John Louie, he got this big smile on his face. And he sat back and he says, no problem, man. He says, here's what you're going to do. And he didn't. He just started telling me what I was going to do. And uh, he's got every right to do that. And he was like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get that old costume out of the closet. And I'm going to have you do a show in Kuala Lumpur and a show in Jakarta and a show here in Singapore. It's going to be a fundraiser for Lisa Mann. And we're going to be happy to help Lisa out. And you'll just go around and you'll do that and you'll be able to raise money. No problem. And so that's what we did. And we raised nearly $20,000 just going over there from the generosity of the churches uh, to cover that first year's protocol. And someone must have seen it on Facebook because I got an invitation to come down to Los Angeles and do it here and then I got an invitation in Houston and then it was sort of I finally my brain kicked in I said well I'll just keep doing this and so for four years 
Four years, I flew over 400,000 miles doing the old man thing again all over, and many times in churches where I'd done it 20 years ago. And we raised the money to cover Lisa's protocol. And I was very thankful for that. Now, I, on Facebook, Hank, Henry, my professor, his daughter and I are friends. I haven't seen each other since she was a child, really. But she was asking one day, her mother had died of cancer before her father did when she was a child. And she was asking people for memories of her mother. Can you tell me any stories about my mom? I'm having trouble remembering her. And people were telling stories about her mom, and I had one, and I wrote her. And I said, in some time, if you want, ask me, and I'll tell you how your father saved my wife's life. Well, she wrote right back, what are you, what are you talking about, Uncle Steve? And so I told her the story about the day that I walked in, unprepared for a class, and he took me into his office. And along with many, many other lessons he gave me that I'll never forget in my life, how he told me to never waste an audience. And that years later, I would be standing on a stage in New York, unprepared, but I wouldn't waste the audience, and I would invent a character. And that then years after that, I would need to have some way to get money to take care of my wife's cancer. And lo and behold, would it not be not out of preaching the Bible or, or doing something normal, but it's going to be, it's, I, I'm not an I never did any acting except in college to get girls. <laughs> I said, but your dad saved my wife's life. He taught me something that ultimately I had no idea that it was ever going to be useful, that it was ever going to mean anything. But there's never been a time I've walked out on a stage in that old costume. I didn't thank God for Henry, and I talked to Henry. I, I wish I could say I hear, I hear Henry's voice in my head every day. Every, I still hear his voice. And he had a snort when he laughed. He was one of those snorters. <laughs> so I'm riding my motorcycle, and I rode across country, and I'm really tired. It was one of those iron butt things. Is it okay to say butt these days? I think so. It was an iron boutier thing. Or, or. And I got as far as uh, uh, from, uh, there's a little spot where you go from Tennessee and the North Carolina to South Carolina. I was heading to Columbia, South Carolina. And I, I'd ridden the bike for almost uh, uh, 25 hours at that point without any sleep. And it was raining. And there's a stretch of highway uh, coming down through North Carolina. It's, it's four lanes, but it's really, really windy. And it's one of those kind of four-lane roads that there's just a concrete abutment between the lanes. And uh, so the, the light's coming. It's, it's dark. It's rainy. I'm sleepy. I'm tired. Uh, and the light's coming really, really bright, and I'm just riding along, and, and I'm doing what I've been doing since I was 11 years old. I'm just looking at the white line. And maybe it's the fatigue. Maybe it's I'm getting older and I'm emotional. Maybe it's I'm just whatever. But I remember after doing that, you know, just riding, and, and I'm, a, I'm a proficient motorcycle rider. I've taken a lot of lessons to do it. And, but I'm riding along, and I'm looking at that line, and in just one of those ecstatic emotional bursts, I stand up on the pegs and I start screaming. My dad's name is Les Johnson. I start screaming, God bless you, Les Johnson. Thank you, Dad. I love you, Dad. 
because it just overwhelmed me. Something he taught me when I was 11 years old was keeping me alive to this day. And that's what 2 Peter is all about to me. It's something that was written 2,000 years ago. God wrote to make sure that all of us poor, lost children knew that he was waiting to sing over us. He was waiting to celebrate. He was waiting for a party that was only going to happen when we start looking at that line and remembering that line and holding on to that line. There, you know, for a lot of us, we probably don't even remember the person that started pushing us in that direction. If you can, God bless you. If you can't, don't worry about it because the truth is, ultimately, it was in every case, for you, for me, for everyone, it was God. It was God saying, they need this person. They need this event. They need this thing. Poor derelict, unprepared Stevie Johnson. Lisa needs a way to get fixed with cancer. He's going to have something to say. It was God over and over in our lives singing to us to make sure that we'd have what we need because ultimately God wants to sing and rejoice that we're with him. God bless you all. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.